And here's to right our gentle-hearted king. Open thy gate of mercy, gracious God. My soul flies through these wounds to seek out thee. Off with his head and set it on York gates, so York may overlook the town of York. In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. We're your hosts, Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. So that's kind of a a good way to segue between our episode last week about Micklegate Bar and our episode this week about Shakespeare and kind of theater during the Elizabethan era here in York. We've got a new exhibition coming to one of our attractions, Barley Hall. It's called The Bard at Barley Hall, and it opens July 23rd. In this exhibition, you can explore the history of York through the drama of Shakespeare and learn all about Barley Hall's unexpected role in the revival of Elizabethan theatre in England, with exhibits from York Archaeological Trust's own collection and costumes from movie adaptations of Shakespeare's tragedies and comedies. But before you go and visit that, how about we talk a little bit about Shakespeare and York? I mean, Lucas, what's the connection between Shakespeare and York? So York actually is mentioned quite a lot in Shakespeare, but mainly in the form of the House of York. You find the Duke of York is often referred to in the text as York, very conveniently. Um, The city of York doesn't pop up very much at all, unfortunately, (laughs) Um, but it does get that little mention when Queen Margaret says it in Henry VI, Part 3, Act 1, Scene 4, off with his head, set it on York gates. So it gets a little uh, cameo appearance. And am, am I right in thinking that that set it on York Gates? That's to do with Micklegate Bar, right? It is, definitely, yeah. Micklegate Bar is where the severed head of Richard, Duke of York, was put on display with a paper crown on it, according to Shakespeare. But we'll talk a bit more about that, I think, in a gruesome Halloween episode, perhaps, one day. <laughs> All right, so we know that he mentions York then, but, I mean, did Shakespeare himself or his company of performers ever come to York? How about before we chat about that, we can talk about what uh, performances and plays were like in the period, and then whether he may or may not have come to York. (laughs) (laughs) So the 16th century is this time of big change in performance and acting. You see the emergence of professional commercial theatre at the time of Shakespeare, towards the very end of the century. So we have had um, plays, entertainment, things like this for a very long time. And they were very popular. There's all sorts of stories like Robin Hood that were quite popular with common people. Less popular with rich people, of course. (laughs) But in the reign of Elizabeth I, noblemen had permission to start organising theatre companies and actually employ actors. So that's quite strange, because before this point, just any old person (laughs) seemed to put on plays, regardless of talent. But professional acting becomes a thing in its own right during this period. Uh, So what do we know about these companies then? So you'd have to organise yourself under the patronage of a member of the nobility. 
Now, this is because the Elizabethan period has a bit of a uh, concern about strange men we don't know wandering around the country. (laughs) If you were just to turn up at a town or village and say you're an actor, but you have no patronage of a noble, you'd be probably misconstrued as a vagabond roaming the countryside. So this kind of official stamp of approval is very important. It's a very kind of religious time, of course, and people tend to stay in their own towns and villages for much of the time. So it must be quite alarming when a group of young men just rock up into town, <laughs> half of them dress as women in these performances, because of course there are no female actors, God forbid. <gasps> they talk about themes like secret romance, they dress up as fairies in some place. It's all a bit weird, isn't it? But luckily, if something like a duke has stamped them as official actors it's all well it's a okay (laughs) at that point excellent shakespeare's earliest plays we're not entirely sure specifically which company would have performed them but from 1594 shakespeare's company is under the patronage of the lord chamberlain henry carey so it's known as the lord chamberlain's men but later they rise up the ranks a bit because king james sponsors them and they become the king's men so the most prestigious of all the acting companies in the country and of course they're mainly um performing down in london that's the the big kind of venue for their audience the most populated city in the country so this is a very big important company Most of the time they're in London, lesser companies that don't have their own theatres, they're the ones that we tend to see touring the country from town to town, city to city, putting plays on for the population of those towns. Does that mean that Shakespeare wouldn't have travelled then since he had the Globe? Well, the Globe is their main place they're operating from, and it's open most of the year. Not on Sundays, though, and not during religious holidays, and also not during times of plague. So, right. I mean, I guess we're familiar with that. We're very familiar now. Yeah, our movie theaters and stuff. Yeah, that wasn't closed during the plague, you know? Like, so unlike the 21st century, where we hide indoors Mm -hmm. when a plague happens and avoid all social contact, Shakespeare's company and others in London would have left the city and roamed around touring the country. So, those seem to be the prime times when Shakespeare's company left London and may have come to places like York. Now, York would have been a pretty easy place to get to. It's, of course, on one of the main coastal shipping routes from London. And a ship would be very handy to bring your equipment up here, because, of course, all those props and costumes... Probably heavy, yeah. yeah. A bit bit difficult to tote around. So when London gets the plague, hooray, we get a bit of Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) So do we know for sure that he came to York then? So I've come across some very, very brief mentions of visits to York but with no extra details whatsoever, unfortunately. (laughs) So whilst the Elizabethan period is in what we call the early modern period, this point of transition from the medieval world to the modern world, they don't quite have the same quality of written records that we have today or in the more recent centuries. So we don't have big posters, unfortunately, from (laughs) Elizabethan York saying, coming soon to York Theatre, Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. (laughs) There are no magazine articles either, interviewing the actors or anything like that. Um, Often we only really know about Shakespeare's visits to other towns and cities from some very strange records from court proceedings. For example, if a performance was in a private household and there were secret Catholics there, (laughs) 
It could be mentioned in passing. Oh, the Catholics were at a Shakespeare performance in Coventry, don't you know? (laughs) So we get it in very weird records like that. Also, financial records can tell us as well. For example, a city council might note in their minutes they've paid this many shillings to the King's Men, Shakespeare's company. And we don't have anything quite like that for York, unfortunately. Also, York does not have its own version of the Globe Theatre, which no. is a shame. I really wish we did. That would be amazing. So there's just really a nowhere for them to put on these plays, I guess. Well, there were some places, not quite on the same scale as the Globe Theatre. Uh, places like the Globe are dedicated, of course, to these performances. They are purpose-built to house the audiences, house a proper stage and all of the equipments. But there are places you can perform in places like York. So in some towns, these performances would happen in the larger churches. Of course, places like cathedrals, they're the largest buildings in the whole country. So if you get permission from the local priest, that's a great place to put on your show. Alternatively, we do have some records of what some smaller acting companies would have used here in York. For example, in the 16th century, the Minster Court was sometimes used. The Common Hall and the Merchant Tailors Hall, just around the corner from where we are right now. Uh, in 1589, that venue was used. And the Guild Hall was also used in the city centre until 1592, when performances were stopped due to vandalism. Oh, boo. <laughs> uh, but it's possible that people didn't want a theatre here. <laughs> it's worth mentioning that. Because some people did not like these plays that Shakespeare and men of his generation put on. Of course, there are these folk known as the Puritans about at this time, and they are not keen on loud, rowdy groups of men uh, going to watch these strange performances. Undesirable people, whatever that means, tend to attend them. Thieves, there's noise, there's disruption. Theatres that did exist in the period tend to be outside of city walls, away from genteel folk. And by the time of Oliver Cromwell, um, theatres were banned for a period of time as well. So not everybody loved the theatre. Generally, poor people loved theatre. It's a bit like watching Netflix, I suppose, (laughs) at the time. Everybody can access it. The nobility loved theatre because often they're glorifying their own families in them. They'll go, oh, that king was my great-grandfather, don't you know? Middle-class people, though, they're the ones who are a bit iffy about theatre. It's kind of fun to think that, I mean, something that we associate as being quite, you know, hoity-toity, loving Shakespeare seems like something only fancy people do these days, right? But, like, I mean, Shakespeare kind of put on his plays for the lowest common denominator sometimes, so... Yeah, and it would have served a really good function as well for um, teaching people about history and geography, I suppose, as well. Lots of Shakespeare's plays are, of course, set in other countries as well. So it must have been quite magical, I think, for people who haven't had a formal education in Mm -hmm. classical history or geography, things like that. I mean, definitely. I mean, we, you know, everyone knows Romeo and Juliet and things like that, but so many of Shakespeare's plays are histories. So it was a really good way of knowing exactly who this, you know, monarch was related to. It's a bit like uh, watching the Lord of the Rings films, but not reading the books because they're quite long. (laughs) (laughs) But people loved watching these performances. Around about 1595, it's estimated that down in London, about 15,000 people a week were attending plays. So these things are crazy popular in the late 16th century. 
Lots of young men desired to be actors as well. It became a very desirable profession. Once again, not for ladies, unfortunately. By the 1660s, though, women were performing Shakespeare plays, so they got there eventually. Instead, there are lots of uh, young boys portraying women. Quite a strange time to be alive. <laughs> it is. It's very kind of Grecian, that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so 15,000 people, that's a lot. I imagine that these were quite big theatres then. What did they look like? Well, they would have varied in size quite a bit. Um, there are some smaller ones which were indoor theatres, but larger ones are the outdoor theatres like the Globe. Uh, they have some covered seating, which I'd imagine is probably the more expensive seats. <laughs> and a yard in the middle that's open up to the sky. So if it rains, you're going to get very, very wet. Uh, to save costs as well, a lot of these buildings have thatched roofs rather than tiles, but this caused some problems occasionally, because thatch is a wee bit more flammable than <laughs> ceramic, of course. In 1613, a prop cannon set fire to the roof of the Globe Theatre. It burned down in about an hour, but thankfully nobody was hurt, and they built a brand new one with a tiled roof instead. <laughs> I'm glad they learned their lesson, that's fair. And actually, when watching these performances, they don't have the same level of landscapes that we would have today. There's a general aversion to fire being used in any of these performances, so not a lot of pyrotechnic displays are going to be going <laughs> on, I'd imagine. And also, plays happen during the day. You don't want to have loads and loads and loads of candles everywhere. They're very expensive and they may set fire to your building if you attempted a nighttime performance. <laughs> that makes sense. What about kind of scenery then? Would that have been like a big production? Would they have had, you know, different kind of backgrounds sliding in and out and all sorts of things like we kind of do today? They've not quite got to that kind of level just yet. It would be quite disruptive having to do that much uh, changing of scenery throughout the plays. Instead, Shakespeare's got a much better method. Someone just tells you exactly where you are and what's going on. <laughs> but in lovely, flowery, expert Shakespearean language, of course. I bet it's a bit like, you know, when you're watching Netflix series or something and it says in really big letters at the bottom, London, you yes, know? <laughs> just like that, yeah. London, England, as opposed to London, Azerbaijan or something. <laughs> so, for example, um, in Henry V, there's a really great opening speech and it tells you exactly what's going on and kind of apologises. They can't recreate it completely. They essentially say, for every soldier you see on stage, pretend it's a thousand soldiers. <laughs> Stuff's going to happen in the space of like 10 minutes, but really it's 10 years. So use your imagination. Just go along with it. Yeah. And they say, be patient and, and be kind. We're doing our best. <laughs> but it rhymes more than that. Fair, fair. <laughs> If all of this is kind of going on in London and York only gets, you know, touring companies very occasionally, does that mean that York didn't really have its own kind of theatre scene in its own right? Well, York has its own very special theatre scene going on in this period. It's kind of a hangover from the later Middle Ages that extends all the way through to the late Elizabethan period, and it's known as the York Mystery Plays which some people might be familiar with, because they were literally playing these this summer. So the York Mystery Plays are very, very different to the plays of William Shakespeare. It's a play cycle, first performed in York during the 14th century, made up of about 50 of these mystery plays or pageants. And these don't cover the things that Shakespeare covers, which tend to be, you know, recent royal history... Um, what else does Shakespeare do? <laughs> <laughs> tragedies, comedies, yeah. yeah. Tragedies. It's all biblical history. Um, so this stretches from creation 
all the way through to the Last Judgments. And they're also known as the Corpus Christi plays because they're performed around the feast of Corpus Christi. So unlike Shakespeare, where his plays are performed throughout the year, except during times of horrible deadly plague, (laughs) these are performed around that feast, which takes place around the middle of summer. And this is ideal because it's a really, really long performance. You need a really, really, really long day for this to happen on. They'd start doing them about 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) Could you imagine? Like, I mean, like, I know that there wasn't a lot of conventional entertainment, but I wouldn't wake up at 4.30 to watch, like, my favourite TV show, you know? I guess in the past, people were a bit more in tune with the the day and night cycle than we are. I mean, at 4.30 in the morning during summer, the sun's been up for, like, two hours here, you know? (laughs) Pretty much, Yeah. (laughs) You can't sleep, I suppose, can you? You might as well go go to the park and go watch this weird performance going on. So um, they're called the mystery plays um, because mystery has this kind of theological meaning, a mystical religious truth. But also a mystery relates to the secret skilled crafts of York's guilds because the guilds of York are responsible for funding, producing, and performing each of the plays. So it's very, very different to these professional groups of actors that would have done the job in Shakespeare's time. I kind of like that this is like the, you know, early modern version of like the O2 theatre or something, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little little community production, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice. So how exactly were the guilds kind of involved in these mystery plays then? So the guilds were responsible for funding, producing, and performing their own particular play within this play cycle every year. So they would arrange for the costumes, they would sort out the stage, which is actually a wagon (laughs) performed upon, and they would make sure that their members who are performing each play know what their lines are as well, things like that. It must have been quite a headache to manage, though, having all these wagons throughout the city for each individual performance. Yeah, 50 wagons. Why were they using wagons, then? I guess it makes them nice and easy and portable. (laughs) (laughs) There is no uh, dedicated theatre space, of course, as we said, so you can make your own little portable theatre and move it round. And as far as I'm aware, people would pull these round rather than animals. So. I mean, I think they still do that. Like, when, when the mystery plays are on today, I yeah, know they're usually that, that asking for volu- volunteers. Yeah. yeah, you have to drag a wagon around York. So the pageant master is actually a member of the guild who is responsible for collecting money to put these on. They set up this wagon and there may be things like lifting gears to move bits of scenery around. There could be a covered section underneath where you can change your costume, things like that. Dress up as Satan or whoever it is you're being in this play. (laughs) It sounds quite hectic, to be honest. And I think on some occasions you may have two wagons very close to each other depicting two different scenes. So, for example, King Herod might be on one wagon representing his palace Another wagon is the nativity scene and the three wise men ride horses between them. (laughs) (laughs) So each of these plays has a particular guild assigned to it. Some of them seem very random to us today, um, but actually some of them do make a bit of sense. The theme of the story might relate to the job that the guild actually does, their craft, their skill. Do you want to see if you can guess any of these? Yes, you're going to really test my biblical knowledge here, but I will try my very best. So can you guess which biblical story the Guild of Bakers would would perform? I mean, 
two things kind of spring to mind. Okay. Either like the loaves and fishes thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Or the Last Supper. The Last Supper is correct. All right, yes. all right. Red has a rather big role in Christianity. <laughs> yes. Was that a pun? A rather big role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I accidentally a terrible pun there. Yikes. <laughs> Uh, okay, how about the shipwright skill? Ooh. What they perform? I'll give you a clue. A ship might be involved. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like the flood? Noah's Ark? Noah's Ark. All right. So the Ark construction specifically, because they divide the second section with the fishes and the mariners, the flood, because, of course, water, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. How about the goldsmith guild? Ooh, um, the only thing that kind of springs to my mind is maybe like the nativity, gold, frankincense, and myrrh sort of yes. thing. All right. So specifically, it's the bit with King Herod and the Magi, the okay. three wise men, one of which carries gold. And also a shout out to William Snorzel, the goldsmith who used to live at Barley Hall. <laughs> <laughs> How about the Pinners Guild? The Pinners Guild? This one seems quite sacrilegious to me. <laughs> <laughs> um... I don't know. Pins. Something is pinned to something. Oh, no. Is it the crucifixion? <laughs> it's the crucifixion. Oh, no. I guess they've got a lot of pins to hand. I mean, um, yeah. Ooh, that's so, grim, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, is it a bad joke? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, how about the Butcher's Guild? Ooh. I don't know. What does what what would the butcher's guild the do? The death of Christ. No, because of blood. They've got a big supply of blood to hand. Oh no! So when the spear pierces Christ, they can go splash. Um, I guess throw a load of um animal blood at their actor. Lovely. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were they were doing this sincerely, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> These are devout Catholics doing this. Some are a bit more obscure for modern audiences. For example, the Barkers. Do you know what they do? The Barkers? I don't know. They've got no. weird names, quite a few of these. This is one of the many, many, many guilds that have something to do with leather. I swear about eight of these guilds, like <laughs> tan leather or stitched leather, and they all hate each other <laughs> and take on very specific parts of the leather trade. But leather tanning, this is a pretty disgusting process. You have big pits of smelly, noxious substances. So the play they perform is the fall of the angels because Lucifer and all these demons fall into the stinking pits of hell. So there's kind of a bit of a joke there, I suppose. Yeah, fair. Um, that, that seems like a really tenuous link, but sure. And some of these guilds are a bit poor. The goldsmiths are quite wealthy, wealthy as you can imagine. But the tilers, who do roof tiles, they're not the wealthiest group in town, so they do the nativity because it only requires two actors, oh. Mary and Joseph. And also there's a hole in the roof where a lovely ray of light from heaven shines down on the infant Christ. So there's a kind of very tenuous roof tile theme there. <laughs> Some of them are so poor as well, they can't actually do their own performance. They've got to piggyback on another one. There's a guild of water leaders whose job it seems to be to carry buckets of water. I imagine they wouldn't have loads of money. That makes sense. It's not the most lucrative kind of <laughs> one, is it? I'd imagine compared to the goldsmiths specifically. But the water leaders, they occasionally would buddy up with the bakers. Uh, they might have a bucket of water to wash the feet of Christ. They're like, we helped. Here's our water buckets. <laughs> and they seem to have fallen out at some point and joining with the, with the butchers and other dates. So I really like that, like, the guilds were involved. It seems like the kind of local people were involved. It seems really community-oriented. 
Did these plays carry on for like a long time then? I mean, I know they're around today still. Have they continued throughout? Well, from the 14th century, they were carried out on a very, very regular basis through into the late 16th century. Then they seem to have fallen out of favour for a certain because of a certain event that happened in the 16th century here in England. Can you guess what happened? Is it something to do with religion? And- it is, yeah, yes, religion, of course. Um, they're a bit old-fashioned medieval Catholic plays, and by this point, we're a God-fearing like Protestant nation. <laughs> So they essentially get banned and stop being performed. But we're really lucky that the York cycle of mystery plays is very, very well preserved in a medieval manuscript. And in the mid-20th century, they were revived. And they've been performed on a very, very regular basis in York for the public since the mid-20th century, all the way through to today. And hopefully they'll continue for all time. Oh, that's nice. So, I mean, like, with the plays of William Shakespeare and with these mystery plays, it seems like they were really popular and have kind of stayed very popular for a really long time. Why do we think that is? I guess in this period, people, a lot of people, didn't know how to read and write. So these plays act as a form of entertainment and education. The mystery plays, of course, teach you about biblical stories, which otherwise are all in Latin. So it makes you wonder how much Christians at the time really knew about Christianity without things like these plays helping them. And of course, Shakespeare's plays are really good about teaching you about recent English history, like the Wars of the Roses, in a very entertaining manner. We're quite lucky that they were so popular because both the mystery plays and the works of Shakespeare are very, very well preserved and we can read them now and they act as a window into both medieval and Tudor society. If you liked this episode, you should go and visit our new exhibition, The Bard at Barley Hall, opening July 23rd, where you can explore the history of York through the drama of Shakespeare and learn about Barley Hall's unexpected role in the revival of Elizabethan theatre in England. With exhibits from York Archaeological Trust's own collections and costumes from movie adaptations of Shakespeare's tragedies and comedies, you can purchase your tickets at barleyhall.co.uk. In other news, to celebrate the release of Thor Love and Thunder, the Jorvik Viking Centre is collaborating with York City Screen Cinema and giving away cinema tickets and passes to Jorvik. To enter, head over to at City Screen York on Instagram for more details. Winners will be announced by 7pm Tuesday 12th of July. Best of luck! Don't forget to rate and review that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, share us with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favourite history podcast. To contact us for more information or ideas for future episodes, you can email us on podcast at yorkat.co.uk. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Transcripts and chapter markers are available on yorvikthing.buzzsprout.com. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeology. Hosted by Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. Researched by Lucas Norton, Ashley Fisher, and Miranda Schmiederer. Produced by Ashley Fisher. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.